We're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. If you've got a Bible, you'll want to get over there to Psalm 139. The uh, smallest town in the United States. I don't know if anybody else knows where it is, but it is in northern Nebraska. It's a little town called Manawi, Nebraska. Manawi, Nebraska has a population of one person. Her name is Elsie Eiler. Elsie is in her 80s. And uh, Manawi once was a thriving community of maybe 150 to 200 people. It was founded around 100 years ago. And uh, it grew to where in the 30s and 40s the railroad was going through town. There was some farming activity. And so there were 150, 200 people. But over the course of the last 60 or 70 years, the town slowly declined. Uh, The young people moved away to bigger cities. Older people died off so that in the 2000 census, there were only two people living there, Elsie and her husband. Uh, In 2004, Elsie's husband passed away. And so Elsie remains the only one left in Manawi. She is the mayor of Manawi. Uh, I don't think they have an election, or if they do, it's just her raising her hand and re-electing herself every few years. Uh, She runs the tavern in town, so she also grants herself a liquor license every year so that she can sell alcohol in her tavern. She pays taxes to herself, $500 a year. All alone. Uh, There's another town nearby that has two people, but at the moment she holds the record for just one. Now, when you hear about that, here's my question for you. How does that make you feel? Uh, There may be a few of you in here that you hear about Manawi, Nebraska, and you think, I would love to live there. There'd be no people around, nobody to bother me, nobody to listen to. I could be all alone with my thoughts and feelings. Uh, But my guess is that most of us on some level uh, think that sounds rough and lonely. Uh, There may even be a few of you that you you had this thought as you heard about it. Uh, Manawi, Nebraska, population one, is an awful metaphor for my life. It may be that you thought, you know, I feel like a lot of the time I live in my own little village, right? All by myself, alone. Mortonville, population one. Nobody understands me. Nobody really knows the thoughts and feelings of my heart, even though I'm surrounded by people. You may live with roommates who are great friends, but when push comes to shove and you are in pain or in trial or you feel depressed or anxious, they don't really understand everything going on in your heart and mind. And so you feel alone. Or it may be that you're single and you desperately want to get married and day after day, week after week, you think, I really would like to have somebody else who understands me. I don't want to live in my own little world, in my heart and mind. Even worse, it may be that you are married and you feel a desperate sense of loneliness because there's distance between you and your spouse. So that there's a person that you thought, this person's supposed to understand me and he or she doesn't get me. If we're honest, the reality is that the relationships of our lives invariably let us down when it comes to real connection and intimacy with one another. And that's especially painful in those moments where we are stressed or depressed or anxious or undergoing trial and we reach out and we want somebody to understand, but the reality is that all too often we feel alone. We feel isolated in our own hearts. 
I think everybody at some point in their lives has probably felt like that. I would like to connect, but I feel alone. I feel like nobody understands. Even if somebody tries to understand, they're not in this with me. And even if they want to be in it with me, they can't do anything to change it. If you've ever felt like that in the midst of trial, uh, the good news is that the Scripture talks about that feeling quite a bit. Especially the writers of the Psalms, and especially David, uh, he understood and wrote about exactly that feeling. What is it like to be anxious and alone in the midst of stress and trial? David wrote about that actually a lot in a number of his Psalms, including the one we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 139. But another psalm where David wrote about that feeling, Psalm 22. Okay, you're familiar probably with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The the beautiful, most famous psalm in the entire book where David talked about God's presence and concern for him. You may be less familiar with Psalm 22 except for its opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Jesus quoted that line on the cross feeling isolated and alone in his pain and suffering. And what David did in Psalm 22 is he walks down to the depth of this valley of loneliness and pain, and he reaffirms at the end of Psalm 22 that really God's the only one who hasn't forsaken him. And Psalm 22 begins with anguish and it ends in hope. At Psalm 139, the psalm we're going to look at this morning, deals with a similar theme, but it's not quite as sad as Psalm 22. David doesn't go quite as far down into those depths of pain, but he's still dealing with this feeling of, I'm in the middle of a trial and nobody really gets me. If you know much about David's life, by the way, uh, David did not live an easy life or an easy existence. Not only was he king of Israel and responsible for the well-being of everybody in his kingdom, millions of people. Uh, But David had a rough home life as well. You probably know, David had several wives. And at varying times, one or the other of them uh, was always angry at him. At one point, his wife that he really loved, McCall, it said that she despised him. And so David experienced isolation between him and this wife of his. He also experienced pain between him and his kids. His kids were a mess. One of them, Absalom, actually tried to overthrow David's kingdom. This child that he raised and loved. David had a military commander, Joab, who was constantly undermining David's kingdom with his violence and deception and lies. And so in these moments of stress and attack and anxiety, David would often write about feeling alone. That's what Psalm 139 is about. David is in the midst of attack from his enemies, and he reaches out and he says, I'm alone, except for God's presence. If you're familiar with Psalm 139, you know that it's often used to talk about what we call the omni-attributes of God omniscient, he knows everything, right? Omnipresent, he is everywhere. Omnipotent, he's in charge of everything. And I think that that's great. We need to derive those attributes of God from the scripture. But if you look at Psalm 139 simply as sort of an academic description of God's attributes, you actually miss the heart of Psalm 139 because David is not approaching this subject from a sort of detached theological point of view. I know academically that God is everywhere. God knows everything. God controls everything. Those are true, but David says, here's what's important. God knows me. God is with me. 
God has a plan for my life. For you and me, Psalm 139 speaks to those moments of really our deepest sorrows. That because we live in a sinful and broken and fallen world, we feel alone. We feel unknown. At times we feel unloved. And what David does in those moments is he says, this is who I know God is. To know I'm never unknown. I'm never unseen. Never alone. And this world is not out of control because God has it in his hands. That's where David is going to take us this morning. And what we want to do as we look at Psalm 139 is begin to replace those lies in our minds and hearts with the truth of God's word. Look with me at Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. At the beginning of Psalm 139, this word that uh, David uses to search, the idea is this word is used in other contexts when you would send spies into unfamiliar terrain. All right, so think about the book of Numbers and what does Joshua do, or what, what does Moses do? He sends 12 spies out into Canaan, right, to search it out, to map it, figure out who the people are, what the fruit is, what the cities look like, who's there. That's to search. And the idea here in Psalm 139 is that God has looked at the topography of your heart and he's mapped it all out. He knows everything that's in there. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. You've searched me. And you have known me, right? One of the greatest struggles for all of us is that feeling of, you don't understand me. Anybody who is married has no doubt had a moment where you're in the midst of, we'll call it a discussion with your beloved, right? And you look out in the midst of that discussion and you think, this person is from an entirely different universe. They don't get me. I'm saying things and it might as well be in a whole other language, And they're saying things, and I don't get it, and there's this gap in understanding, right? It's not just husbands and wives. That's the human experience. Uh, When I was in junior high, somewhere around 1988 or 89, one of the most popular songs on pop radio that year was by Will Smith, the DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince is Will Smith, the actor, right? If you're old enough, you remember that. The song by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince was called Parents Just Don't understand. Right? I could sing it for you this morning. I won't. It would be great if I did. But I remember hearing that song when I was 12 or 13 years old and thinking, the Fresh Prince gets me. Right? Because my parents don't understand. They don't know. They don't understand what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I want to do, what I don't want to do. They don't get me. Every child has felt that way. Every friend has felt that way. Every spouse has felt that way. It's common to the human experience. And so David lies awake as he's writing this psalm and he says, in the midst of feeling like nobody gets me, he says, God, you have searched me and known me. You know what's in my heart. He says, you know when I lie down, 
and when I rise up. You don't have to send God a link to your Google calendar. He's got it. He knows what you're doing later today. He knows what you're doing tomorrow. He knows what you're thinking. He says, even before there's a word on your tongue, God knows it. God knows what you need and how you're feeling and what you're afraid of and the sinful thoughts of your heart. He knows those things even better than you do. He understands those things even before you understand them about yourself, right? That's why Jesus would say, when you pray, you don't have to babble and constantly talk about all the stuff you need because he says, look, God knows. Before you even say it, Jesus goes back here to Psalm 139. He says, before you even say it, God knows what you need. Right? God knows everything about you. Right? This is uh, comforting to David in the midst of his distress, right? Because we often feel like David did, that I'm in some corner of the universe that God doesn't see. Right? That there's some pain in my heart that God can't possibly understand. And David says, no, God knows. That when my wife and I were first married and living in Dallas. Shannon was a teacher. She taught junior high kids, and uh, mysteriously, she liked it. She enjoyed working with junior hires. But I remember one day, I went to teach a guest lecture in her classroom on the subject of poetry or something. And so I stood up to talk, and I realized something about that classroom dynamic that I had never realized before. And here's what it was, that as I stood in the front of the room, I could hear everything they were whispering to one another. When they passed notes, I could see it. When they talked to one another, I could hear it. And I remember being a seventh grader and thinking that I wasn't noticed or seen. What I realized from that perspective was I could actually hear and see everything that was happening, but I could only respond in my finite nature to some of it. Right? But the point is they felt unseen but they were seen. When we're in distress, we feel unknown, but God knows. There's no sadness you've ever experienced that God doesn't understand better than you understand it. There's no fear that you walked in here with this morning about your career, about your marriage, about your children, about your health. There's, there's none of them that God doesn't understand better than you do. There's nothing going on in your body that God doesn't get better than you because he made your body. See, that's what David is saying. It's not just general knowledge of everything that God has. It's specific, detailed, accurate knowledge of the topography of your heart. He knows everything. Right? And so David says, not only does God know everything, in the midst of our pain. But then as we look further into the psalm, here's what we're going to see. God is everywhere. Look at verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. 
darkness and light are alike to you. Here's what David does in this psalm. He uses a figure of speech known as a mirrorism. And what you do with a mirrorism is you talk about the whole by using the extremes, right? So he says, look, if I go all the way up into heaven, God's there. If I go all the way down into Sheol, Sheol was considered underground. It was the realm of the dead. If I go way up here, I go way down there. God is there and God is everywhere in between. That's a mirrorism. He says, if I go to the wings of the dawn, Right, If I go all the way as far east as I can go, where the sun rises, God, you're there. If I go to the remotest part of the sea, remember, if you were in Israel, where was the sea? It was on your west. He says, if I go all the way over to the west, God, you're there. You're, you're up, you're down, you're east, you're west, you're everywhere I would go. You're in the light, you're in the dark. There is nowhere that you can go that God is not. So not only does God know everything about you, but he never abandons you. You're never alone. This is one of the beautiful realities of God's word over and over and over again. God is always present. That is that word omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you're going to be that God is not. And that's significant for David in the middle of his trial. Not only that God knows what's going on, but God is in it with him right there. He's never abandoned it. Right, and again, who in crisis has not had that moment of, I'm alone. Right? Not only am I unknown, I'm all, I'm all alone, spinning in my own little village. Right? When we think we're alone, we're never alone. When I was eight years old, my family was living in Lafayette, Louisiana for a few years, and we lived on a cul-de-sac, and at the end of our cul-de-sac, there was a four-acre residential property where a family lived, and through their property ran the Vermilion River. And they had a little hill that sort of cascaded down into the Vermilion River. So my brother and I would go over to their house, and there were these little girls who lived there. And part of what we would do in playing with them is they had what was called a roller sled. Right? A roller sled is like a snow sled except with wheels, right? Because this was the south. There was never going to be any snow. So we would get on that roller sled and we'd go down this hill toward the river and we'd get going as fast as we could until kind of at the last minute we would jump off that sled before we went into the river. And then we'd pull it back up and we'd do the same thing again. Well, we were playing this game one day and my older brother, who was always thinking up uh, creative ideas that ended up with me getting injured, uh, had an idea. He said, hey, why don't we go on the roller sled at the same time? Why don't both of us go on the roller sled together? So I said, okay, kind of tentatively. Uh, We got on the sled. We got about halfway down, and we started going a lot faster than I was comfortable with going down this hill. So I bailed out. I jumped off the roller sled halfway down the hill. And when I jumped out, I landed on my knee, and I hit a rock, and I gashed open my knee. And it began to bleed, and I sat down on the ground, and I began to cry, just howling tears of pain and sadness. And so my brother and these two girls came, and they looked at me, and they saw what was going on, and they all ran away and disappeared. So here I was, sitting on the ground, injured in tears, and I'm not making this part up. As I'm crying, all of a sudden, a guy runs like out of the woods. And he runs up and he picks me up and he says, I'm going to get you home, right? And he takes me home and he gives me to my mom. And then I went to the hospital and I got stitched up. And then the guy, you know, the guy walked back down the street 
and I guess back into the woods. Like, I don't know where he went. The only other time I saw the man was a couple of months later, I was walking our little dog, Brownie, who was about this big. And Brownie was dumb as a rock, right, but sweet as candy. And he picked a fight with a German shepherd. And uh, the German shepherd leapt over his fence and came and began to rip our little dog to pieces. And as that was happening, I was alone and I began to cry and scream. And the same guy rode up on his bicycle and he separated the dogs and he put the German shepherd back where he belonged. And he said, are you okay, son? I said, yes. And then he got on his bike and he rode away and I never saw him again, right? I'm not making that up. And my parents said, they would laugh and they'd say, maybe this is your angel. And I don't know who he was. Maybe he just was like a really vigilant neighborhood patrolman. You know, he just kind (laughs) of followed kids to make sure there wasn't trouble. I don't know where he came from. Maybe he was an angel. Maybe God sent him. I really don't know. But I've always thought back to those moments whenever I feel alone in the midst of crisis because I'm always reminded that when I thought I was by myself, I wasn't actually by myself. When I thought I was unseen, I wasn't unseen. When I thought I was alone, I wasn't alone. There was a a rescuer. There was a saver right there. That's what David says. It's more than just God's Spirit is generally everywhere. It's that God's Spirit is with you everywhere you go. He sees you and He's with you. This principle is why, to me, I think the book of Jonah is one of the funniest books in the entire Bible. If you read the book of Jonah and understand what's going on, you can't help but laugh, because you remember, God says to Jonah, he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell those people that I'm going to destroy them if they don't repent. And Jonah says, I don't like those people. And so he gets on a boat, and he says, I'm going to go away from God. He literally tries to sail to the remotest part of the sea. He goes to Tarshish. Not only does he get on a boat, but he says, if I climb under the boat into the hold, God probably can't see me down there. And he hides. All right, and the rest of the book of Jonah, of course, we see God demonstrating to him, no, I, I, I see you. All right, you're not hidden. God kicks up a storm Jonah has to admit, yeah, God found me out on the sea. They throw him into the ocean, and God gives him a fish that swallows him up, spits him out on the beach, and God says, let me say it again, Jonah. Go to Nineveh. And I love just the brevity of the author, who probably is Jonah. He says, this time, Jonah went. You can't get away. There's nowhere you're going to go where God's presence is not already there. There's a song that I occasionally will hear uh, on the radio, or you know, I've heard it in worship services, and some of you have heard it. It goes, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Right? It's a, it's a pretty song, and it's, I understand what the writer is trying to say, right? but here's my only quibble with it. He's already here. You don't have to invite him. The Holy Spirit is not waiting for your Evite. And you send it, he goes, oh, I can come. No, he's already here. He was here before we got here this morning. He'll be here when we leave the room. And he goes with us when we leave the room. There's nowhere you are that he is not. 
depending on what you're doing and thinking, that's either comforting or terrifying, right? If you're Jonah running away, it's terrifying. If you're David in the dark, feeling alone, facing the world's enemies and God's enemies, it's deeply comforting. Because David recognizes that you're never alone. Right? God is there. God is present, even in, those midst, even in the midst of your deepest distress. When our oldest daughter was uh, two or three, um, sometimes when we would stay at my parents' house, she would get fearful because we put her in a relatively unfamiliar bedroom, turn off the lights at bedtime, it would get dark, and right next to the bedroom there was a bathroom And when the toilet flushed in that bathroom, uh, the pipes in the wall would make a pretty loud noise, lots of kind of squeaking and and loud water noises, and it would just terrify her, and she'd begin to cry. And, And one of our favorite phrases for her at that age that we would remind her of in those moments of fear is, God is always with me. And so we began to tell her, say this, God is always with me, even when the toilet flushes. God is always with me, even when the toilet flushes. God is always with me, even when I'm afraid for my kids. God is always with me, even when my health is failing. God is always with me, even when a family member or a spouse or a child walks away from me or God. God is always, always with me. You see what David is saying. Where could I go from your spirit? There's nowhere I can go. God knows everything. God is everywhere. Thirdly, he goes on, he says, God's plan is perfect. Look at verses 13 to 18. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here's what David says. He begins by reminding himself of God's plan for his creation. So what David does, is he says, look, God, I know that before I was born, you knit me together in my mother's womb. This is a beautiful description of God's creative act for each person, not just God's creativity in general, but David says, you made me, right? You and I, when we think about the human body, it is not slapped together. I'm not a doctor, But I've read that in your body alone, if you laid it all out end to end, there would be 60,000 miles of blood vessels all inside of you, right? Enough to go around the world two and a half times, intricately woven together. In your brain, there are 100 billion, with a B, billion neurons that help your brain work like it's supposed to. A hundred thousand hairs on some of our heads. But God knows how many there are. Here's what David says. He says, God, you, you 
made me in my mother's womb. You planned me out. And then he's going to go on, he's going to say, if that's who you are, then you must also have a plan for my life now. See that? He makes this jump. He says, the God who so intricately designed my body also can intricately plan the course of my life and the course of the universe. So he says, in your book were written all the days of my life before I was even born. He says, you wrote them out. You know what's going to happen. You see the end from the beginning. This is a theme of scripture that God has planned where you're going to live. God has planned the people you will know. God knows your life. So you're never going to step into a moment where not only is God not there, but God goes, oh, I didn't anticipate that moment. Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 17. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Right? Paul says, God placed you just where he wants you to be. Now, I want to be careful. David is not suggesting that evil things are good, right? He's not saying the bad stuff that happens is actually good stuff, that when people hurt one another or lie or do bad things, that's actually good. Instead, what he's saying is God is creating a picture. God is creating a plan that will turn everything toward good, right? This is David's version of Romans 8 28. We know that God causes all things, what, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, even the darkness of our lives, God can turn the trajectory toward his purposes. That God is creating something in history in which his plan will succeed. Death will be undone, Isolation will be no more. The sin in our hearts and lives will be destroyed. Satan himself, God's greatest enemy, will be defeated. So that we'll see God's plan at the end and say, yeah, God turned everything for good for those who know him. By the way, this is at the heart of the gospel itself, isn't it? What the, the rulers of Jesus' day did was bad. They, they put the Messiah to death. They killed him. They conspired together to murder the Son of God. That's a bad thing. But what did we sing about this morning? Three days later, the Son of God defeats death. And out of that tragedy comes our eternal hope. All right, so David says, the one who knit me together has a plan. And I know it's going to come together, even if I don't know how. Every Christmas at our house, I do a Christmas puzzle, usually a thousand-piece Christmas puzzle. It's just something I do to uh, spend my time in the evenings or on weekends. And uh, one year, I had this great puzzle that was a nativity scene with Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the animals, beautiful painting on this puzzle. When I finished the puzzle, though, uh, here's what I saw. Now, I don't know how well you can see that from where you are, so I'm going to try to point out the problem if you don't see it. Problem is right here. There's a piece missing. Okay? If you have ever done a 1,000 piece puzzle and finished and had one missing piece, you will question the goodness and sovereignty of God. <laughs> I looked everywhere for that piece. I asked my kids, I believe I accused my children of like eating it or putting it in a pie. Like I, I, 
I could not find it. I thought maybe the dog ate it. I never found it. Still to this day, when I look at this, right now, I feel a little angry about that puzzle. Now, why do I share that? Here's why I share it. Because I think on some level, uh, all of us have this fear that we're going to get to the very end, right? We're going to get to the end and we're going to meet Jesus. And we're going to see the big picture and we're going to go, wait a second. There's a, there's a piece. It's missing. Your plan didn't come together. The puzzle doesn't look right. right? Isn't that what we're afraid of? When we're in the midst of pain, when we feel isolated and alone, we say, you know what? Maybe God didn't take this into account and there's going to be something missing. And David says, no, nothing's going to be missing. God's plan is perfect. So that where David closes is ultimately to say this, because of that, because of God's knowledge, because of God's presence, because of God's plan, God can be trusted. Look at verses 19 to 24. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred, They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, we read this, of course, after these great affirmations of God's presence and knowledge and concern. And it seems strange then that David goes, and by the way, God, would you kill all of the people who don't like me? But it's important to understand what's going on to get at the heart of what David is saying. I remember David, as the king of Israel, has a promise from God that he made specifically to David. He said, David, from your line is going to come the line of kings. That, David, you will always have a descendant who has the right to rule over Israel. And if the people of God will obey, if they would follow the law, God says, I'll keep you on the land. I will give you victory over your enemies, and I will bless you. I'll bless your crops. I'll bless your life. And so David comes back to these promises. And he says in the midst of this battle, this is not a metaphorical battle that David is facing. This is a real battle. Because of God's promises, I trust that God will vindicate me. Now we read that and of course we recognize we don't have that same promise. We're not the nation of Israel. We're not kings of Israel. We don't have this promise of physical blessing and life in the land But what we do have are eternal promises. What we do have are present promises that God will never leave, that God is working an eternal plan for his glory and our good. Jesus says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. The book of Revelation describes to us a day when Jesus Christ himself returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, a kingdom where it says there's no more sin, no more tears, no more death. There will be no more pain, no more loneliness between you and other people or between you and God. And so just like David, we turn to God's promises and we say, I can trust him. He knows what he's doing because he knows everything. He's everywhere. He's got it covered. He's got a plan. So I can trust him. So as we wrap up, let me offer a thought by way of application. I'm going to 
mention. A few of the thoughts that I know have, have come to my mind in moments of pain, in moments of trial, that maybe have come to your mind as well. And then talk about the truth of God's Word. There's this lie. Maybe you've heard this one. Nobody understands me. Right? Everybody feels like that from time to time. Nobody understands me. Right? Psalm 139 says, no, God understands me perfectly. Even when nobody on earth does, he's mapped the topography of your heart. Or this one, I'm all alone. Everybody ran away. And it's just me against the world. Right? David says, no, God's always here. He's in your room with you in those moments of doubt and fear. He's in your heart with you in those moments of pain and suffering. You're never alone. My life is out of control. All of us recognize we control very little about our lives. You say, my life is out of control. David says, God has a plan. You can't control your life. There's so little that we do that we can control. So little in our lives that we have any control over. David says, I don't have control, but God has control. He is building that picture piece by piece, and I can trust him. And fourthly, there's no hope for me, right? That may be the most devastating one of all. The situation I'm in will never change. I will never feel differently. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for my life. There's no hope for my marriage. There's no hope for my kids. There's no hope for my career. There's no hope for me. And David would say, now, we have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. If we know Jesus Christ, we place all of our hopes in him. We say there's always hope. Because the dead son of God rose to life. And now he says, not death, not Satan, not sin, None of it, none of God's enemies will win. We have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ that cannot be snatched away. Even when we feel alone, even when we feel unloved, even when we feel unseen, God is always with us, even in those darkest moments. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word and for this powerful and poignant reminder from Psalm 139 that you're always with us, You always see us. You you never take your hands off the wheel. So I pray in those moments when we hear the lies of our flesh or the lies of Satan, I pray that we would counter those with truth from your word. Father, we understand why generation after generation of your people have returned to this psalm as one of the most beloved in the entire book because we need to know these things. We need to hear these things. We need to understand. It's not just that you have these wonderful theological attributes, but instead that you're with us even when we feel alone. Father, we thank you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.